Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. I got my voice transplant this past weekend, so... It sounds like it's a success. <laughs> nice yeah. job. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. So I definitely have a little bit of hoarseness in my voice. I'm sure that everybody listening will be able to hear it on this episode. So I do apologize about that. Melissa, you sound great, even though I know that you have been battling your way through through sickness this past week. So how yeah. are you feeling? I am doing better. Thanks. This is day nine of COVID. I mean, I'm definitely feeling better, but it's been a long week and my whole family had it. So we kept putting off recording, but I thought when we put off recording, my voice would get better, not that yours would get worse. Right. So, <laughs> that so was we unexpected. could have just done this days ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so uh, yeah, so hopefully our audio all sounds okay. It's raining again. So I am in the closet this time recording <laughs> and let, hoping for the best. And um, I'm sure it'll be fine. But if this is your first time listening, that was a lot of disclaimers to get through like <laughs> yeah. a normal week. My bad. And also kind of shocking considering this is our fifth year anniversary of doing this podcast. <laughs> so. It is. And you'd think we'd learned a lot, but I still have to do things like think, should I record in the closet today since it's free? Like, it's just, we're still, I don't know. I feel like in some way we're still a baby podcast yeah. and people will tell me like, you're not. Right. I feel like this is very on par for us though. So it seems appropriate to have our anniversary episode being this way. Absolutely. It, it it would be wrong if everything was just coming together and, you know, I wasn't sitting on my ankles in a very small and very hot room. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk um, some more at the end kind of about five years of doing the podcast. And if you are new to the show, I think we do have some new listeners uh, recently. So we'll talk a little bit about kind of how we started doing the podcast and how we ended up here five years later uh, at the end of the episode. So stick around for that. But we do have a really wild story um, to talk about this week. It's a case that I somehow have never heard of, but I, to me, there was like a little twist at the end that I wasn't yeah. expecting. So, and then I was also surprised that I had really never heard of this story before. Yeah. It's, this is a rare one where both of us like did not know this, like the twist you're getting to at the end, I knew a little bit of, but like typically one of us has heard the story or we're familiar with it before we do it. This one, neither one of us. So this is a good five-year five year anniversary yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's been a while since we opened an episode with a little dose of statistics, but if you have been listening to us for a while, you know that we love to crunch the numbers around here because it makes us feel better. It makes us feel better about Absolutely. Kind of where we're at and what our what the risk really is uh, out there in the world for us. Because talking about true crime all the time and listening to true crime a lot, it kind of makes it easy to forget that, you know, violent crime is actually very rare. It's not happening to everybody, you know, every day. So um, as rare as murders are in general, we're talking like 0. 0.000 something percent, you know, of people are actually murdered, it's even more unlikely that you would ever be attacked and murdered by a random stranger. In fact, out of 21,000 murders in 2020, it's estimated that less than 10% of them were actually committed by a total stranger, which makes your odds of being killed in this way extremely low. But on the night of April 21st, 1992, police were called to the parking lot of a TGI Fridays in Milwaukee, Minnesota, on reports that two people had been randomly and brutally attacked as they were leaving the restaurant that evening. 
Jesse and Barbara Anderson were a couple that was out on a date that night, um, just enjoying TGI Fridays. Melissa, I know you love TGI Fridays. Can I tell you, TGI Fridays, like when my husband asks what I want, I want the apps from TGI Fridays. They're mozzarella sticks, perfection. Buffalo wings with the wings in them, not wire. Not wireless, not boneless. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably eat wireless uh, uh, wings as well. But yeah, they are like my one true love, uh, quite honestly. though The three for all is what it is. Yes, love. perfect date night spot. So for these two parents, you know, it was important for them to spend some time away from their kids to regroup and recharge their own batteries. I think we can all relate to that as well. Oh, yeah. Um, And these parents actually had three kids. One kid is a lot, especially one toddler, but they had three kids under the age of five. So that is like not just having your hands full. That's having like everyone's hands are full. (laughs) Yeah, Your, Your hands are full. Your husband's hands are full. That's a lot going on in one household. So this young family lived in a suburb of Milwaukee called Sockville, and they kept a very private and quiet life. Barbara was a stay-at-home mom, but she was active in civic organizations such as Big Brothers and Big Sisters, but her top priority was her three kids. She spent a lot of time with them, and she was a really good mom. Jesse had a nice career working as a salesman for Lakeside Oil Company, making about $145,000 a year, which would be equal to about $304,000 a year today. So although they did only have one income, they were still able to live a very comfortable life. For Jesse, this was his second time around the block with marriage. He married his first wife, Deborah, in 1979. And at that time, he was working at a pizza parlor in Clinton, Iowa. And Deborah was the sister of one of the other employees there. Jesse and Deborah moved to Chicago and had one child together. But by 1983, their relationship was on the outs, and Jesse was already seeing Barbara. He married Barbara in March of 1985, right after his divorce from Deborah was finalized. Deborah got custody of their son, and Jesse was ordered to pay alimony and child support. But Deborah and their son had no contact with him after the divorce. We're going to talk more about Deborah later, but first we're going to get back to Jesse and Barbara's date night on April 21st, 1992. That night was thoughtfully planned out, just the way it really has to be done when you have three small kids to take care of before you can even consider going out for an evening together. So Barbara arranged to have a sitter several days in advance, and they planned on going to uh, dinner and to a movie. Jesse wanted to see a movie at Northridge Shopping Center in Milwaukee. That movie started at 7, so the plan was to eat dinner at TGI Fridays in the same shopping center after the movie. That's like my whole growing up. Like, you would do dinner and a movie, like, at the mall. After the movie, Jesse parked the car behind the restaurant outside of the main parking area. The couple dined on broccoli soup and nachos, and Jesse had two alcoholic drinks while Barbara sucked to a virgin strawberry daiquiri. It was about 10.20 p.m. when the Andersons finished and left the restaurant to head home. As they approached their car in the back of the restaurant, two men in baseball caps allegedly appeared out of the darkness and began instantly attacking and stabbing Barbara with a knife. Jesse tried to fight the attacker off, and he was also stabbed in the scuffle. Jesse was knocked to the ground at some point, and the two assailants took off. He then got in the car and tried to dial 911 from his cell phone, but he was weak and was unable to complete the call. He slid out of the car and crawled on the ground to find his wife, Barbara, who had been severely injured. A man named Daniel, who lived across the street from the restaurant, 
heard Barbara's screams during this attack, and so he runs towards the back of the parking lot, trying to find where the screams were coming from. Daniel thought he heard someone say, help me, and he knelt down on the ground to hear where this voice was coming from. Daniel saw Barbara laying underneath a white Ford van. It was actually parked right next to the Anderson's vehicle, which was a dark gray Volvo. Jesse was on his hands and knees, but Daniel didn't see anyone else in the parking lot. Daniel ran into the restaurant to get an employee to come outside to help. A waiter went outside with Daniel, and they went back to where Jesse and Barbara were, and they realized that the couple was actually covered in blood. So Daniel goes back into the restaurant to have someone call for an ambulance. At this point, a small crowd is gathering in the parking lot trying to figure out how to help. A restaurant patron named Paul had first aid training, so he went outside to offer his help. He first found Jesse, who quietly said, quote, Help me, help me, a guy stabbed us, help my wife, end quote. Jesse's laying down on the ground on his stomach with his arms folded up under his head like a pillow. He said he had a knife stuck in his chest and Paul told him to not try and remove it, but Jesse did anyway. He took the knife out and he laid it on the ground. Once Jesse had removed the knife, he referenced a Clippers hat that was on the ground and he told the restaurant patron, quote, that's the guy's hat, end quote, referring to the attacker. Paul checked Jesse's vital signs and Jesse told him to go help his wife instead. Under the van, Barbara's covered in blood and she's barely responsive. Paul asked her if she was hit by the van, but she could not verbally reply. She did shake her head back and forth, which Paul took to mean no. Jesse then spoke up and told Paul that Barbara had been stabbed five times, but he was completely calm as he said these words. After more people start becoming aware of the commotion outside, which, by the way, at a mall, at the movies, on a, you know, like a date night kind of thing, I can't imagine how many people are actually out here. There has to be so many. Someone asked the restaurant patrons whether or not anyone had any medical training. Another customer there happened to be an EMT, so she goes outside to see what's going on. A short time later, the emergency responders finally arrive on scene. Of all the people who came to help the couple... No one managed to get a glimpse of the attackers responsible for these injuries. Jesse told the emergency personnel that he'd been stabbed and had even pulled the knife out of his own chest just before they got there. They found the knife, which was a four-inch pocket fishing knife with two blades on it, and it was on the ground next to Jesse. He continued telling the story about what happened. He was providing specific details, such as that these two attackers were black men and that the one who was wearing the Clippers hat did so in a way that made Jesse believe he was associated with a gang. I'm not really sure what that means. There's only so many ways to wear a hat, but that's the way he described this to the police. Right. The officers did find the Clippers hat laying on the ground near Jesse as well. Barbara and Jesse were both transported to the hospital, but Barbara was in far worse condition than Jesse was. In fact, she was fighting for her life and remained unconscious throughout the whole ambulance ride to the hospital, where she was then placed on life support. It was quickly determined by Dr. Stuart Rice that Barbara was brain dead and would not recover. She had been stabbed over 20 times, with 19 of them being on her head and the majority being concentrated on her face in the areas that were surrounding her eyes. One stab wound to the right side of her head actually penetrated her brain. She had numerous defensive wounds, including lacerations on both of her hands. Jesse, on the other hand, was only minimally injured in this attack, with only four cuts to his upper left chest, all right next to each other. Two of them were what looked like hesitation wounds, 
One was a puncture wound and one was a deeper puncture that went in about three and a half inches and actually punctured his lung, causing it to collapse. Jesse also had bruises on both of his knees and his left chin, as well as a cut on his index finger, but he had no bruising on his face or head. When police asked Jesse to explain in detail exactly what happened, this is what he told them. He said that he and Barbara left their house around 6.30 that night and they saw the movie The City of Joy at 7 p.m. After the movie, they went to TGI Fridays where they had a normal dinner. When they got back to their car and Jesse was putting the key in the passenger door to unlock it, he hears Barbara scream. And when he turns around, he says he saw a man in his face. The man stabbed Jesse once in the chest and Jesse started fighting back, causing the attacker's hat to fall off. The attacker then tried to stab Jesse two or three more times, but Jesse said he sort of blacked out and the next thing he really remembers is laying on the ground with a knife in his chest and hearing his wife Barbara screaming. He tried to drag Barbara under the van to protect her from the attackers who allegedly took off on foot towards a nearby Best Buy. Jesse said he then took the knife out of his chest. By that time, Barbara's unconscious, so he starts yelling for help. He said it was three to four minutes before anyone came to help, and he wasn't sure who they actually were. He said the attackers said nothing to the couple, not even that they wanted money. They didn't even try to rob him. Jesse provided a detailed description of these suspects, once again reiterating to police that they were black men. And just want to add here, um, with Jesse's description of these men, he refers to their race. So you will hear that throughout the story. You will see where that is actually relevant to this story as we go along. So Jesse said the man who stabbed him was in his early 20s, about six feet tall, slim build, about 175, and in his early 20s. He said he'd never seen either of the men before that night, but he told officers that he would be able to identify them in a lineup. Robbery clearly was not the motive for the attack because police verified that Jesse still had a watch and his gold chain, his wallet with almost $100 of cash inside, and Barbara's still wearing her gold and silver jewelry when she arrives at the hospital. So the attackers didn't take anything of value from the couple. Once their interviews were complete, investigators worked on beginning to unravel what led to the vicious attack and who could be responsible. Jesse would be kept in the hospital for several days. In less than 24 hours following the attack, investigators were already suspicious of Jesse's story. For one thing, this area has a very low crime rate, and additionally, no one else said they saw anyone else at or near the scene or fleeing the scene. So the investigators collected several pieces of evidence from the crime scene, including the blood-soaked knife, but they were unable to recover any usable fingerprints off of it. The key to the Anderson's car was stuck in the passenger side door, and the key had a light coating of blood on it, but there were no fingerprints found on the car or the key. In the trunk of the Anderson's car was a cell phone, two fishing poles, and a few other items. There was blood inside the car um, in the back seat, as well as on the passenger side door handle, and there was a drip of blood that rolled down the back passenger door, and it fell onto the rubber seal, and that seemed particularly weird to the investigators because if the car door was closed, the blood wouldn't have been able to reach that rubber seal, so they're thinking like... The car door was open, but of course that's part of his story is that he was trying to open the car and like, you know, she she was walking behind him when she was attacked. So I guess they're saying like, did you open the car door or not? Like, were you at that point where it was open or was it not? Because of course that's just chipping away at his story, you know, right from yeah. the get-go. There was also blood found on the interior window frame, 
as well as the armrest of the rear passenger door and a spot of blood on the front floor mat. But letters found inside of Barbara's purse, which was found under the car, raised suspicions that she and Jesse were going through maybe a little bit of a rough patch. One of these letters was from Barbara to Jesse, and it talked about how she promised to work on her weight if Jesse would work on not being so critical, uh, being more supportive of her, and not always finding fault within her. There was also a letter from Jesse to Barbara, and he wrote that he felt their marriage needed to be perfect because his marriage to his first wife, Deborah, was not perfect. And he talked about being raised in conflict and how you know that has affected him now and affected the kind of person that he has become. Right. So there was another letter as well that was addressed to nobody in particular, but it was written by Barbara, and it talked about her brother, Jimmy, and how he died and she was really still struggling with his death. Up until these letters were found, nobody would have had any idea that the Andersons were having marital problems because, as we said before, they were extremely private and kept a very low profile. But there was actually quite a lot to learn about the couple and their marriage. And a lot of what we know now came from the many police interviews that were conducted during the investigation into this attack. To learn more, officers interviewed several people that were close to the family. According to the babysitter, the Andersons' household was very regimented, and Jesse had instructions for exactly what time everything could be done. He had a set time for when the kids could have juice, when they had to be dressed in their pajamas, on and on and on. Yeah. And so the sitter did say that everything seemed fine and normal that night when she arrived to babysit. Jesse's boss at Lakeside Oil said he wasn't aware of any marital issues, and as far as he could tell, Jesse loved his wife and kids very much. He knew Jesse to be very active with his family and said that he was a very friendly and outgoing guy with a great sense of humor. And further, he was an excellent employee who kept an even temperament at work, and everybody seemed to really like him. He'd never caused any problems in the office, although much of his day-to-day activity wasn't in the office. He spent it outside of the office doing sales. His boss said that he didn't know what Jesse could have been up to the day of the attack, but nobody could place him in the office during the afternoon hours of that day. And we're going to get into a lot more of this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I watch a lot of true crime stories, which I know it's surprising, I'm sure. But I feel like I've watched all the ones on my normal platforms. So I was looking for something new with stories I hadn't heard before. And that's when I came across BritBox. BritBox is the streaming service created by BBC and ITV and is the home of the best in British true crime, which includes The Barking Murders, a three-part series based on a true story that was a huge story across the pond. Melissa, you were telling me you'd watch this story, right? I did. I watched all three parts last week in a row with only bathroom and Diet Coke breaks. The Berkey murders themselves were a new story for me, but I really love the way award-winning true crime producer Jeff Pope tells this gut-wrenching story of these four men in London who lose their lives to a cold-blooded serial killer played by Stephen Merchant. I've seen Stephen Merchant in tons of stuff, lots of stuff with Ricky Gervais, mostly comedic, but he was able to play this incredibly dark serial killer, both brilliantly and chillingly. What was really great about the Barking Murders was that it focused on who the young men were who were killed and the impact that their murders had on their families in the midst of truly one of the most incredible police failings at every turn. 
Make sure you check it out and let us know what you think. Sign up for BritBox now to watch The Barking Murders and other exclusive true crime shows. We have a special limited time offer for our listeners, 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use our promo code MOMS at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Use promo code MOMS at BritBox.com. Do you know what NAD is? I didn't before, and trust me, you'll want to hear this. NAD is found in every single cell of your body. It's responsible for creating energy and regulating hundreds of cell functions. But NAD declines as you age. Lack of sleep, intense exercise, or too much sun can also deplete NAD levels. And decreased NAD levels are linked to faster biological aging. It can even slow down vital body functions. If you've been listening to us for a while, you know that living a healthy lifestyle is really important to me. That's why we've partnered with Elysium Health, the sponsor of this episode. Elysium Health is a company focused on the process of aging and works with some of the world's best scientists. In fact, seven of them have won a Nobel Prize. If you're like me, you put thought into your wellness, diet, and exercise. Those things are important, but you can't overlook the importance of cellular health. Elysium's product, Basis, is an easy add-on to your supplement routine, and it's clinically proven to raise NAD levels by 40%. NAD helps our cells create energy. Basis is my secret weapon to target the effects of aging on the body. It supports my workout recovery and metabolic health and reduces general tiredness and fatigue. Basis by Elysium Health is a game changer, and it's a cornerstone of my daily routine. But you need to try it for yourself to experience the results. Here's what we want you to do. Go to trybasis.com slash murder, and when you enter our code MURDER at checkout, you'll save 10% off Basis prepaid plans as well as other Elysium Health supplements. That's trybasis.com slash murder, and be sure to use our code MURDER at checkout to save 10%. Thank you to Elysium Health for sponsoring this episode. Step into the glitzy world of June's journey and prepare for an adventure that's out of this world. Get ready to ditch the dull and dive into a world where mystery meets glamour and where June Parker's drama-filled escapades will have you hooked faster than you can say, flapper dress. Whether you're itching for a whodunit fix or just craving an escape from the mundane, June's journey is your ticket to excitement. Follow June as she unravels family secrets and untangles the web of mystery surrounding her sister's death. It's like joining a high society soiree, but with way more intrigue and way fewer dull conversations about the weather. Just kidding. You know we love a weather chat. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and immerse yourself in a world where every corner holds a new clue and every twist keeps you guessing. But hold on to your pearls because June's journey isn't just another run-of-the-mill mobile game. I'm already knee-deep in the fifth chapter of June's journey, and each chapter is more fun than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the toe-tapping music, everything about June's journey screams class. So what are you waiting for? Step into June's world and let the adventure begin. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were getting into a little bit about the Anderson family dynamics and kind of learning that things might not have been as great as they seemed on the outside. So a family friend, Patricia, said the couple was happily married and they had frequent date nights where they go to dinner and a movie, and TGI Fridays was Barbara's favorite place to eat. Other friends had said similar things about the Andersons. Barbara was part of a close-knit group of six women that referred to themselves as the Strawberry Daiquiri Group because they met on the third Thursday every month to play cards and drink strawberry daiquiris. Several members of the Daiquiri Group were interviewed to try and glean some sort of insight into Barbara's life. 
One woman named Mary said that while she wasn't aware of any problems within the Anderson marriage, she didn't personally like Jesse and she found him to be cocky. She said he was jealous of others and their success and seemed to be very prideful. Another woman named Joy said that Jesse seemed to give Barbara a lot more attention than the other wives were getting from their husbands. But she also said that Barbara expressed a desire to have more of a say in things at home. For example, Jesse actually picked out all the furniture in the home as well as all of Barbara's clothing. Cannot imagine the things I'd be wearing if my husband picked them out. They would all be from 1992, I can tell you that. That's where his style (laughs) ended. And so then Joy mentions that Barbara's weight was actually a point of contention and that Jesse had been, quote unquote, getting on to her about having a weight problem, was the word he used, after she had her last baby. Ew, I hate this guy already. So mm -hmm. this is now the second time that Barbara's weight has been brought into the conversation as being something that Jesse evidently had a big problem with. So what was his deal? Police thought maybe his first wife, Deborah, could shed some light on it. When Deborah was asked to give an interview, she told police all about her experience with Jesse Anderson. When she first met him in 1978, he was working at the pizza parlor, and even though she was warned about Jesse, she said she was young, foolish, and in love with him anyway. Deborah's brother, named William, thought Jesse was a liar who told a bunch of made-up and embellished stories, including the ones about him being in the military. He said if you added up the amount of time that Jesse claimed to have been in the military, plus having gone to school and these other life experiences he talked about, he would have to be at least 40 years old, not in his early 20s like he was at the time. So he thought Jesse was like a smooth-talking thief. William also recalled a time when his parents were actually scared of Jesse, and they even kept a loaded shotgun near their front door. He said Jesse bragged on more than one occasion about how he was trained to kill in the ROTC. So in January of 1979, Jesse quit this job at the pizza parlor, and he told Deborah that it was because the owner had accused him of stealing money from the business. Jesse insisted that he did not steal anything, but the parlor owner said that when Jesse and Deborah started dating, he started taking her on all these really expensive, fancy dates, and everybody at you know the par- pizza parlor was wondering how he was paying for all of this. Every night at the parlor, Jesse would count the cash drawer, and he always came up with exactly zero dollars or change over or under what it was supposed to be, which is very strange for a food business because there's always times when people are like, oh, keep the penny or, you know, or you give back somebody like a little bit extra so you might be a few cents off on the register. Um, It's not common to like, like every single night have absolute perfect, like there's everything accounted for. Not a penny, you know, unaccounted for. So eventually the owner started planting an extra $65 in the register just to see what would happen. And still, Jesse would always report that there was $0 over Mm. or under. So that's how they figured out that he actually was stealing from them. At this point, they have no idea how much it could be. But it was estimated that he stole between about $1,200 and $1,500, which would be over $5,000 today. Yeah. So he was given the option to take a polygraph test with a police officer to prove his innocence, but he declined and quit the job instead. Nothing says I'm innocent, like quitting your job because you don't want to take a polygraph test. According to Deborah, Jesse was not a nice guy during their relationship. He constantly accused her of seeing other men, even though she wasn't, and he was extremely possessive of her and seemed to want total control over everything she did. 
For example, if she were to go out with her girlfriends, Jessie would just stop by or call the restaurant they were at to make sure she was there. And then when she would go home, he would immediately start an argument with her and would threaten to divorce her until she would be at the point of being in tears. And then he would finally stop and leave her alone. And then the next day, he would act like none of that ever happened and would even act sheepish as though he had been the one to be wronged. So Jesse was great at these types of mind games. He would do things like this all the time. He also controlled all of their money very tightly and told Deborah that she couldn't ever buy anything. Meanwhile, he's out treating himself to whatever he wants. He was never physically violent with Deborah, but he always made her feel like she was worthless. She never could do anything right. She couldn't cook right. She couldn't clean right. She never dressed the right way. And... She was never skinny enough for Jesse's liking. One weekend in 1983, while Deborah was away visiting her parents, Jesse filed for divorce completely out of nowhere and stated that the reason for the divorce was mental cruelty. I just. That's rich coming from him. <laughs> yeah. So Deborah was exhausted from dealing with this man and she just wanted to get out of it. She didn't contest any part of the divorce. She wanted it over and done with. And Jesse told Deborah that, you know, he wasn't going to make things easy for her. He actually said that he would kill her before he would ever pay her any alimony. And this is probably a huge part of why Deborah took their son and didn't want anything to do with him after the divorce was finalized. So by the time Deborah was out the door, Jesse was already seeing Barbara, and they quickly started a family together and began a life together, one in which everyone evidently thought they were very much in love and living the perfect life. But was that actually the case, or was Barbara suffering in the marriage the same way that Deborah had? And could that explain some of Jesse's strange reactions after his wife was attacked? When Barbara was taken to the hospital and declared brain dead with no chance at a full recovery, Jesse immediately told Dr. Rice that he wanted her to be removed from life support. Dr. Rice didn't even have a chance to explain what options Jesse had before he was adamantly demanding that Barbara be taken off any life support right now, which Dr. Rice thought was very strange. Very strange. Yeah, you'd think even hearing this information that you would just like knowing her family was there, like people would want to visit with her. You know, that could be like what your decision's going to be, but you who makes that decision immediately? That right. that seems very I could be wrong, but that seems very far off. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like p- a part of that process of of pr- processing that type of information, like I feel like a lot of people it's very common to go through a period of denial, right? Where you're like, no, absolutely not. You know, and like he just immediately skipped past every stage that somebody would be expected to go through getting news like this and was just like, okay, if that's what the deal is, then just cut it off right now. Like nobody does that. That's um, that would be a huge red flag. Right. Without with the doctor not even going through what all of this means. That's just wow. When Barbara's family was informed about her condition and prognosis, they told Dr. Rice that they'd like to wait a day or two and see what happened before making any major decisions. Later on April 22nd, investigators talked to Jesse again. He was still in the hospital himself, but now he'd had some time to collect himself and provide more detail to the police. He said that he parked in the back of the restaurant that night because the front parking lot was full and that when they were done eating, he went to open the passenger door for Barbara, who was about four to five feet behind him, but he heard her scream, so he turned around and that's when he saw a black man stabbing her behind the white van parked next to their car. 
He said he tried to help Barbara, but was stabbed in the chest by the same man that had been attacking her. So he staggered to his car to try to call for help. Meanwhile, he said Barbara fell to the ground and tried to crawl under the van. Jesse said he saw a second black man trying to stop Barbara from crawling away, so he tried to crawl under the van and pull her under that way. At that point, Jesse said the two attackers ran off towards the Best Buy and Jesse started screaming for help. Barbara was not making any noise at this point. Jesse also gave updated descriptions of the attackers to investigators. He said the one who stabbed the couple was a black male around 20 years old, about six feet tall and a thin build. He said that this man had shaved hair that was a little longer on top, a thin mustache, and he had a dark ball cap, which he wore backwards and slightly to one side. The attacker also wore a black jacket that was about thigh length, dark pants, and black high-top tennis shoes. Jesse said the second man was dressed in dark clothing as well, but he had a smaller build. When officers specifically asked Jesse about his marriage to Barbara, he called it a very good relationship and said they had no problems, which... Okay, I get not telling the police, like, yeah, we've actually had a lot of issues, and I keep trying to get her to lose weight. Like, that's not going to make you look good. Also, that makes you a piece of crap. But to be like, we've never had any issues, that's not life. Yeah. So Jesse says Barbara was a great mom to their kids, and she was very active in the community. But his story continued to evolve the more he talked about it. And the more investigators learned about him, the more fishy his whole story started to sound. They learned that Jesse was actually very athletic, and he actually knew karate, so they wonder why he wasn't able to at least make a good effort at fighting off this attacker. Also, they wondered why were his wounds merely superficial, while Barbara suffered several severe and fatal injuries. The thing that really sticks out to me with that is whenever he said he got stabbed a couple times, but then he's on the ground and he like kind of blacks out, wouldn't that make him an incredibly easy target? To go after him instead of Barbara? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. No. Later that night, the police received a tip from a man named Tommy, who saw a news report about the stabbings. Specifically, he saw something that showed the black clippers hat that was found at the scene. This is the craziest part of the story to me. So as it turned out, Tommy believed that that was his hat. Strangely, he had just sold it to a guy at the Northridge Shopping Center for $20 in this bizarre encounter in which a complete stranger walked up to Tommy at about 11.45 a.m. on the day of the stabbing and struck up a conversation with him. So Tommy described this man who approached him in detail, and the description fit Jesse to a T. He said he was a white male in his 40s, about 5'9", 140 pounds, balding in the front with a brown mustache and glasses. So the police are like, that's Jesse. So Tommy elaborated on the story, saying that this man, who we know as Jesse, claimed that he was in the mall looking for a job that day. And one of the tasks that he had to complete, because everybody who goes looking for a job has to complete tasks, I guess, in the mall. Yeah. This doesn't make sense. But he had to prove that he could buy something off of a total stranger in the mall, right? Seems this like a legitimate like, prerequisite like, to a job. All of a sudden, yeah, you are involved in some type of scheme if that is, in fact, something they right. tell you to do. Like, this is a fraud. I'm right. sorry. <laughs> yeah, somebody's playing playing games with you. So the man asked if he could buy Tommy's Clippers hat, and Tommy agreed and accepted $20 for it. Tommy then went on to describe this hat in very specific detail to the police, 
telling them that his hat was about a year old and that it was crumpled and dirty on the inside, especially around the inner brim. And he also described an oil stain on the hat from when he dropped it on the ground shortly after he got it and it landed in some oil. The description of the hat was spot on. It was an exact match to the hat that was found at the scene. So the officers asked if Tommy and his girlfriend, Wanda, who was there that day, would be willing to come down to the station for a formal interview. And they did. Wanda was interviewed separately and told a very similar story. Both of them were shown a lineup, and Tommy picked Jesse out right away. But Wanda wasn't so sure. So they showed her a second lineup, and that time, she was able to pick out Jesse as being the man who approached them in the mall. Through speaking with other mall employees, investigators were able to verify this entire story, which... Oh my gosh, that is so elaborate. Like that he did all of that. That is crazy. And even crazier that Tommy saw the news report and was like, oh my gosh, that's my hat that I sold to that guy. And now here it is on the news related like somehow to this, you know, terrible, terrible story. Like that would be the craziest thing. But think of what could have happened in that case. Like if he didn't come forward and there was somehow, you know, they get the hat, they're able to take DNA from this oh hat my and they find it. That's like, uh, and then he says, yeah, I sold it to this guy for $20 because this guy was asking, you know, that right. is the wildest story in the world. So it if is. he didn't, this this whole story could be totally different. Yeah. So Barbara's parents, Thomas and Veronica, spoke with investigators about their daughter's murder and said they got a weird call from Jesse about a month earlier. They believe the call was around March 14th. Jesse told them that he was calling from his car phone because he didn't want Barbara to hear the conversation. He said he was concerned that Barbara had become what he called despondent, and she started talking about concerns that she was going to die and that she'd been thinking about her deceased brother a lot. He asked her parents not to say anything to her about this phone call and asked if they'd be willing to watch the kids the following weekend so he could take Barbara to Jamaica. And the grandparents said, sure, we'd be happy to watch the grandkids. So according to what they know about this Jamaican vacation, Jesse golfed basically all day every day and Barbara hung by the pool. They didn't really spend very much time together. And according to Jesse, Barbara kept talking on this trip about being afraid of dying. What Jesse failed to mention was that he was forcing Barbara to climb a tall waterfall with sandals on, and she kept slipping. She was literally scared she was going to fall to her death. Barbara's parents said the couple seemed to have a good relationship, but their daughter was a very private person. So even if there were any problems, she probably wouldn't have discussed it with anyone, including her family and friends. Jesse's mother said she didn't know about any issues in the couple's marriage either. But one of Barbara's friends, Mary, felt that something was wrong right away when she went to visit Jesse in the hospital following the attack. She was surprised to see that Jesse wasn't really displaying any emotion about the fact his wife had just been so brutally killed. She said he never cried, and he acted kind of cocky and sure of himself, even making plans in the future, such as asking visitors if they knew anyone who could help nanny the kids. He even asked his golf buddies about a golf outing that they had planned on about a week later. If anyone brought up the attack, Jesse would just say it happened real fast. Jesse told Mary about wanting to take Barbara off life support, and he was pretty adamant about it, which really rubbed Mary the wrong way, just like it did with the doctor. However, on April 23rd, Barbara was taken off life support, and she passed away shortly thereafter. And we still have more to get into this story including the craziest twist of all time 
after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Have you ever wanted to be the best at something? With Masterclass, you can. In fact, you can learn just about anything from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere. You can learn the power of personal branding from Chris Jenner, improve your knife skills from Gordon Ramsay, or learn the power of storytelling with LeVar Burton. With over 100 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. I've been keeping up with my David Sedaris classes, but I recently have a bit of a sweet tooth and decided to look at some baking options when I found Joanne Chang's Bake Like a Pro. Not only do these lessons give incredible detail, but it feels very much like a one-on-one class. And as I'm going along, I'm beginning to feel like I can actually bake like a pro. By the end of the class, not only will I have learned several of her recipes for things like cakes and cookies, but... I'll actually be able to create some of my own recipes with the tool she's given me. My kids are always wanting to create their own type of special cookies, so I'm so excited that we'll actually be able to do that together. We highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a Moms and Murder listener, you can get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash momsandmurder. That's masterclass.com slash momsandmurder for 15% off masterclass. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Just like Lenny Kravitz, I want to get away. I want to fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while I'm stuck on the ground for now, I can settle for a new kind of journey, all with a fun mobile game. Step into the enchanting world of June Parker with June's Journey, where a spectacular adventure awaits you. And the best part? No plane tickets needed. Bid farewell to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a realm where intrigue dances with elegance, all thanks to the drama-filled escapades of our charming heroine, June Parker. Whether you crave a captivating mystery or simply wish to escape the humdrum of daily life, June's journey is your portal to excitement. Join June on her quest to uncover hidden family secrets and navigate the tangled web surrounding her sister's demise. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and dive into a world where each corner holds a new clue and every twist leaves you on the edge of your seat. But hold on to your pearls because June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm knee-deep in the fifth chapter, and each section is really more delightful than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect oozes sophistication and refinement. So don't hesitate any longer. Step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure unfold. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were really getting into quite a bit about this story about Jesse and Barbara Anderson and this attack that they allegedly experienced at a TGI Fridays one night. Barbara, unfortunately, was taken off of life support and did pass away following this attack. And the police have been interviewing people and learning a lot more about Jesse and the type of person that he really was and the type of marriage that the couple actually had. The same day that Barbara passed away, investigators interviewed Jesse again. He was still in the hospital at this time, and they asked him to explain exactly what he was doing on the day of April 21st from beginning to end. Jesse said that he went to work at about 7.30 or 7.45 and stayed until about 10.30, and then he went to a sporting goods store and bought some fishing poles just because they were on sale. 
He put the poles in his trunk and then went home at about noon for lunch. He was supposed to watch the kids because Barbara had a sinus infection and she was going to the doctor. She got home at about 2.45 and Jesse then left to go play golf. When he got back home, Barbara went to pick up the babysitter and the couple then left for the movies at about 6.30. He told the same story about what happened after that. Then on April 24th, Jesse's sister called um, Jesse's life insurance company to ask them to go ahead and process Barbara's policy. The insurance agent named Patrick called the police to let them know, you know, hey, there's somebody calling and inquiring about this policy. And he told the investigators that on April 2nd of 1991, Jesse had applied for $250,000 of life insurance on Barbara. And she signed the paperwork for all this on April 8th. In April of 1992, so this would be a year later and now the same month as the attack, um, it was time for Jesse to renew this policy. And he was unhappy with the cost, which was just $246 a year, but he did end up making a semi-annual payment, which made the policy effective through October of 1992. When investigators asked Jesse if he had any life insurance on Barbara, he told them that he didn't. When they told Jesse they found the policy, he acted surprised and said that he knew Barbara took a life insurance policy out on herself, but he wasn't sure of the amount until he checked on April the 24th. The investigators also found that Jesse was going through some financial troubles. On April 1st, 1992, he refinanced his mortgage, increasing it to $161,000. Later in the afternoon on that same day, April 24th, Jesse's sister called the police to say that Jesse got a letter while he was in the hospital that indicated gang involvement in Barbara's death. The letter claimed that the stabbing was a result of gangs that were, quote, transferring from the Capitol Court area to the Northridge area. Wait, I'm sorry. (laughs) Were the gangs sending out an FYI? I was curious how that would work, minutes (laughs) from their last meeting? I don't really understand why they would do that. Just scoping out a new area. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the police told her, you don't touch the letter. They wanted her to hang on to it, and they would be coming around to get it. When investigators arrived at the hospital to talk to Jesse, he was really upset because apparently there had been some false reports released in the media that he had actually been arrested in connection with his wife's murder. The investigators promised to find these outlets who made the false reports, and you know this was, of course, like a big disaster because he hadn't been arrested at that point. So obviously it's not cool for the media to be like, oh, the husband's been arrested when he has not. You know, we don't, at that point, they don't know what's really going on. So Jesse's sister also called to complain about these false reports that she was seeing on the news. Among these news clips that Jesse saw, he noticed one that was talking about that Clippers hat that was sold to a white man before the murder. And so he, of course, is like, oh gosh, the police know about that now. And so he asked them, you know, hey, like, you guys know anything about that? And they told him, yeah, they know about the hat. So while all of this was going on, forensic testing was being conducted on the hat. They did find dog hairs. And once they tested those hairs, it was determined that the dog hairs came from Jesse and Barbara's dog. The dog hair was also found on the floorboard of their car, which was enough to secure an arrest warrant and to bring Jesse into custody for real, not just for accidental yeah. <laughs> accidental news release. Yeah. On April 25th, Jesse was about to be released from the hospital when investigators showed up and detained him. He agreed to speak with the investigators without an attorney present. He repeated a similar story that he told police before. 
However, this time, he said that while one of the men tried to get Barbara out from under the van, Jesse opened the front passenger door to get his cell phone, but he was too weak. He fell to the ground with the knife still in his chest. He then tried to roll under the van to help Barbara, and that's when he said he saw the men running towards Best Buy. Jesse was shown multiple photo lineups to see if he recognized either of the suspects, but he wasn't able to identify anyone. At this point, officers finally confronted Jesse about the Clippers hat and told him what they knew. He claimed he wasn't at the mall that day, and it definitely wasn't him who bought this hat. He emphatically denied stabbing his wife or ever hurting her, and asked if he should get an attorney, which the police told him was his decision to make for himself. So he called an attorney and he ended the interview. Later, though, when he was about to leave the hospital, Jesse agreed to go to the station to look at more photos. He was interviewed there again, and once again, he told a similar story, but with varying details. At the end of this interview, Jesse was arrested on charges of first-degree murder, but the media was reluctant to report on it since they'd falsely reported on it the day before, which of course caused a huge backlash that we'll get into shortly. Once Jesse was in custody, investigators continued looking for more evidence of his guilt, especially any evidence of him purchasing the knife used in the murder. On April 27th, investigators took Jesse to the funeral home where Barbara's viewing was to be held. They hoped that the sight of her body would cause Jesse to confess. On the ride there, Jesse talked about normal things like the weather and sports, and when they got to the funeral home and approached the door to go inside, he took a few deep breaths and his demeanor quickly changed. Jesse spent about five minutes standing at Barbara's casket saying things like, quote, honey, I'm sorry, I love you, I'm sorry. He also made audible noises as if he was emotional, but officers noticed no tears. Jesse suddenly said he was very ill and he had to go to the back of the room. Back at the police station, Jesse maintained his innocence, but images of him in the handcuffs at the viewing confirmed that he had in fact been arrested in the murder. Remember, they falsely reported that he was arrested the day before he actually was, so there was a huge scandal around that and the community felt like the media was really untrustworthy. Something kind of interesting to note here, this case happened the same year after Jeffrey Dahmer's case, also in Milwaukee. One thing about this case um, was it really caused a lot of distrust in the police. So when the media dropped the ball in Jesse's case, it really made the residents question everything. At the same time, the Jeffrey Dahmer story is going on and Jesse Anderson, four police officers were acquitted in the assault of Rodney King. So it was a very, very tense time. It's thought that Jesse actually took advantage of the rising racial fears when he concocted his story about being attacked by two black men. On April 27th, another piece of the puzzle fell into place. The owner of a local sporting goods store named James saw a news report that talked about the knife that was used in the killing. He contacted officers to say that he recognized the knife as being this type that was used by fishermen and said that he recently sold that kind of knife to a white man at his store on April the 2nd. The clerk showed the man a yellow knife, but he said he wanted something more pointed, so he showed him a red knife with two blades, which the man paid for in cash and left. This clerk specifically remembered selling this knife because it was the first one like it that they had sold in several months. The owner of the shop was just calling to tell the police that they saw in the news that they thought they were looking for two black men, but they were 100% sure they sold the knife to a white man. The owner was shown a photo lineup, and she picked Jesse out right away as being the person she sold that knife to. 
The police checked all the stores in Milwaukee just to be sure and found out that there were no other stores that even sold that type of knife. The more time that passed, the more willing people were to talk to the police about what they knew regarding Jesse and Barbara's relationship. As we said before, Barbara was a very private person, and her friends may have wanted to respect that in the beginning, even after her death. You know, they don't want to go and start telling all of her secrets if she was a private person in her life, you know. But there is a lot that they likely didn't even know. In late June, a woman named Rosaline contacted investigators after she had a conversation with her friend, Mary. So Mary, we mentioned before, was also a friend of Barbara. And Mary said that after Barbara and Jesse got back from that Jamaica trip we talked about, Barbara started talking about being scared of Jesse a lot more often. Barbara told Mary about this hike that we mentioned where Jesse was making her climb even higher, even though she wasn't wearing proper footwear, and she kept slipping and saying, you know, she was scared and she was crying and wanted to go down, and he was saying they need to keep going higher, and she made it about halfway up before she finally was like, I'm done, I'm walking back down. A couple of weeks later, Barbara's mom was going through some of her things when she found a letter that was written by Barbara that was addressed to Jesse that was dated way back from July of 1987. So the stabbing happened in 1992, you know, so this was years prior that she had wrote this letter to Jesse. And it mentioned that Jesse had threatened Barbara with a knife at that time. And it said something about knives being thrown and there was some kind of bodily force against Barbara at Jesse's hand. Barbara said he pushed and kicked her and consistently threatened to divorce her and he would take away her credit cards and shut off her cell phone. Just a lot of this like really uh, abusive and manipulative behavior. So in this letter though, that she's mentioning all of these things, the whole point of this letter was that she was writing to him in hopes of a reconciliation. Barbara's family was absolutely shocked to see this and to learn about the abuse that she'd been suffering through, you know, completely in silence for all this time. They later started a nonprofit aimed at supporting victims of domestic violence called uh, BELA Charities. It stands for Barbara Ellen Lynch Associates. So if you want to check out that resource, that's uh, something cool. It was also learned in the investigation that Barbara had a session with a therapist named Pamela back in January of 1992, that same year she was killed. She was supposed to go back, but she never did. During the one session that she had, Barbara told Pamela that her husband Jesse would never go to therapy with her and that she was forbidden from talking about him in her sessions. She was incredibly cautious not to talk about him, but Pamela was able to see through it and could tell that Jesse was very controlling and that he seemed to be bothered by Barbara's weight in particular. Barbara told a few stories about how Jesse treated her, like one time he found a candy wrapper and he grilled her about whose it was. She said it was one of the kids, but he didn't believe her and he started getting upset with her. Another time they were at a friend's house and Barbara wanted a piece of chocolate, but she knew she couldn't dare to eat it in front of Jesse. So she asked a friend to sneak it to her in another room. This friend actually told the police the same story when they interviewed her. This like makes me so sad for Barbara. I know. Well, imagine where you have to feel in your head to have to ask your friend. You're a very private person. And asking your friend to sneak you a piece of chocolate away from your husband. Just it's it's crushing like it's so it's so sad like that's such a sad like thing to have to live through and live with right yeah barbara didn't talk to pamela about any other physical or verbal abuse or financial problems but pamela could tell that barbara was very private and she was holding back 
Finally, one of the last people interviewed on July 30th was Barbara's best friend, Patricia. According to Patricia, Barbara had been complaining to her about Jesse for the last several months. Jesse apparently couldn't take Barbara's weight and didn't care that she was actually trying to work on herself for him. He told her that she was too fat. Patricia said that Barbara, who was usually strong and stoic, was teary-eyed when she talked about the subject. I can't imagine having this conversation with your best friend. So Barbara started becoming more nervous all the time. She even developed a rash on her neck and her face and hands. She often talked about not feeling well and said she wasn't sleeping well either. She told them about a party that she and Barbara hosted a couple weeks prior to her murder. Barbara kept asking Patricia to sneak her sweets to eat, and then she would go hide and eat them. She told Patricia, quote, Jesse would kill me if he knew I was eating sweets. It just is so enraging to me that he was so hung up on that, like that that was such a big deal to him. Like, so disgusting. Yeah, I mean, there's just no, there's no other word for it. Patricia actually talked to Barbara on the phone on the morning of April 21st, the day she was killed. Barbara said she wasn't feeling well and she really didn't even want to go on this date that night. Then investigators asked Patricia if she knew anything about the 1992 trip to Jamaica. Patricia said it was the worst, quote-unquote, vacation of Barbara's life. She was very upset when she came home and told Patricia about two incidents. One was the hiking climb that we talked about, and the other was that Jesse kept taking her to these primitive areas and that she didn't like that. She told Patricia she feared for her life on this vacation and said she would never go on a trip with Jesse alone again. Patricia told investigators how upset and serious Barbara was. Wow. So Jesse's trial began on August the 3rd, 1992, which is actually kind of crazy considering they had just spoke with Patricia less than a week earlier. That was incredibly yeah. fast that they wrapped up the case and like he went to trial. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but the prosecutors recounted all the facts that we've talked about in this episode. The assistant DA, Carol Lynn White, later said that she wanted to keep the jurors focused on the very strong physical evidence in the case and didn't want to talk about anything that she couldn't present convincingly. Jesse's defense was simply to continue maintaining his innocence and to stick with the story that it was two black men who attacked them in the parking lot that night. Jesse's lawyers wanted to move the trial to somewhere else, but the motion was denied. They also did this really slimy thing where they tried to bring up other recent crimes in the area that were committed by black people against white people. But the judge said that information was completely irrelevant and he would not allow it. Yeah. The defense brought the credibility of the prosecution's case into question, as well as their witnesses, and even had their own witness testify that she did see two black men fleeing from the scene. After 10 days of testimony, jurors deliberated on August 13th for nine hours. The jury consisted of 10 men and four women. They found Jesse guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for at least 60 years. The judge said that Jesse had, quote, preyed upon fear and racism when he made up the story about being attacked by two people of color. Jesse spoke at the end of the trial and said that he was merely a scapegoat and that his whole trial was just a farce. He said he never would stop looking for Barbara's true killers. Jesse, of course, appealed his sentence and acted as his own attorney to do so on the grounds that his PI found two men who witnessed the attack and said they could identify not two, but three black men as the attackers, which is just so like you have some nerve, like when already they don't believe you and your story, like 
to then be like, actually, now there was a third one. Like, really? That just sounds ridiculous. And also, how did you not notice? You were there. How did you not notice a third person being there? Right. In August of 1994, a judge did agree to hear testimony from these alleged witnesses. But by this time, the defense had already dropped their claim that the witnesses could identify three assailants. One of the witnesses admitted on the stand to lying, and the other told just an inconsistent story. Halfway through the hearing, the judge threw out the case, and Jesse continued to maintain his innocence. Jesse was sent to Columbia Correctional Institution to serve his sentence, the same prison Jeffrey Dahmer was sent to. While working in the prison's hobby shop, Jesse apparently did not get along with the other inmates. At one point, he vandalized another inmate's drawing of Martin Luther King Jr. by drawing a bullet on the paper that was aimed at Martin Luther King Jr.'s head. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Jesse then tried to basically frame somebody else for doing that. He tried to say um, that another inmate did it and um, because he didn't like this inmate and wanted him to get in trouble. But the marker that was used in this vandalism was found in Jesse's cell, and he ended up spending five days in solitary confinement as a punishment. And a spokesperson for the prison said, quote, that's what he did in his crime, wasn't it? Set it up and blame others. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> On November 28, 1994, Jesse and Dahmer were assigned to clean a bathroom together with another inmate named Christopher Scarver. According to Schultz, Scarver had been convicted in 1990 for the murder of his former employer because he felt like the job had wronged him. Scarver had previously been diagnosed with schizophrenia, claiming that voices in his head told him he was the son of God and the chosen one. When they were left unsupervised for up to 20 minutes, Scarver used a piece of metal bar that he took from the weight room to bludgeon both Dahmer and Jesse. What? (laughs) Yeah, I know. This is where our big twist comes in. Scarver then calmly goes back to his cell. And when the guards ask him why he wasn't working, Scarver replied, quote, God told me to do it. You will hear about it on the six o'clock news. Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer are dead. I just could not believe when I got to this part of the research and saw that this happened. First of all, I don't think I knew that Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in prison. I don't know why I didn't know that. I just, it just wasn't something that I knew. And so then to see that like, it was the same day, Jesse Anderson and like by the same person, like I was so blown away by that. I was like, how did I not know that like, Jeffrey Dahmer was killed the same day another person was killed. Like, I I was just Yeah, see, <laughs> I don't remember. I remember Jeffrey Dahmer, that he was killed. And I, I thought somebody else got injured. I didn't know somebody else died. And I definitely wasn't expecting it to be Jesse Anderson when we started, like, reading the research from this story at all, ever. Like, I yeah. thought the whole <laughs> Dahmer thing was a coincidence that they happened around the same time. So guards then found the two men in the bathroom. They were both rushed to the hospital. Dahmer was pronounced dead after an hour, but Jesse was in critical condition and survived two days before dying. Many people have questioned if guards purposely let Scarver be alone with the prison's two most notorious inmates, knowing that he'd kill them. In May of 1995, Scarver pleaded no contest to two counts of first-degree murder, each with two modifiers, habitual criminality and use of a dangerous weapon. Today, Scarver's incarcerated in Milwaukee. Pending any successful appeals, he will die there. I do not see that guy getting any appeals. No, I don't think so. (laughs) No. (laughs) But that is the craziest ending to the story that I totally was not expecting. I I know. Some people listening are probably like, wow, you are very easy to have a reaction to something like that. But yeah, I just was blown away by that. I had no idea that these two cases were were connected in that way. 
Well, yeah, in the world of Jeffrey Dahmer versus this, you know, the crimes that took place, they are very different. Um, so that is wild. I was just thinking back um, with Barbara talking, whenever um, Jesse talked to Barbara's parents, I don't know why this was in my head, but him saying like, she's despondent, all this stuff, like he put in so much thought. And I don't mean that in a nice way at all. Like right. he had so much planning and killing her and getting away with it. Like to say she was despondent to her parents. So when they go on this hike in Jamaica and she falls off and it's accidental, well, maybe she did that to herself. Right. You know, right? it's just such a messed up scenario. But he was planning this. Like this absolutely. was first degree murder at its finest, at absolutely. its worst. But at, at its, its worst. Finest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And it just the whole thing was so... I just it's so gross to me to try and frame anybody or to say to do something yeah. like that and then try and have the police looking for people. And because, you know, you do hear in cases where then the police, they do think, you know, they have to take that seriously and follow those leads in some cases and they have to look into it, you know, and that's how innocent people get caught up in something absolutely. they have absolutely nothing to do with. And it's just I mean, it's terrible. It's absolutely awful. Yeah. And, um, um, that's exactly what happened in the Susan Smith case. Remember when Susan Smith, she drowned her two children and she said a black man broke, uh, robbed her at gunpoint and drove off with the kids in the car. And so that was a huge deal because it was her. And right. she she came up with that lie. And it was the same idea, the same kind of time period and just how messed up people can be to turn it off of themselves. It's it's abhorrent. Right. I mean, that happened also with the Casey Anthony case when she said the Zanny oh, the yeah. Nanny thing. And then they mm -hmm. ended up finding a woman who like had the name that Casey Anthony that gave them. That was the craziest thing. Yes. And then, you know, and the woman lived here in Orlando. So they're like thinking that this poor woman had something to do with this or knows anything about them. And she has to then prove to them that she does not have anything to do with it. But like what like that poor woman, like having to even be in the middle of that and have her name yeah. like in the media and everything, like just people who do stuff like that or the worst of the worst, like absolutely evil. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we have a lot. Do we have a lot to talk about? Last thing before we go. Yeah. Last thing before we go is a little segment we do at the end of the podcast. We've been doing it for a couple of years now, haven't we? Last thing before yeah. we go, um, where we just talk about a little something different that's not crime related. Um, since today is our five year anniversary of doing the podcast, we thought it would be. Nice to talk about kind of the history of the podcast and how we got started and how we got here and maybe what we hope happens going forward with the podcast. Oh my gosh, um, I was not expecting all of that. <laughs> <but yeah. laughs> well, I I came prepared, so I have some questions for oh, you, look Melissa. At you. Oh, fantastic. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I really don't. Oh, phew. Thank God. Because I'm like, you know, I'm normally the one that like has, writes all the questions and I'm like, do you want me to share them with you? I could share them with you. Yeah. Um, over prepare for one. Um, Mandy. When I asked you a little more than five years ago, hey, do you want to start a true crime podcast? What were your real thoughts? The second time, not the first time. The first time you blew me off. Yeah, yeah. So that is how it kind of got started. You just asked me if I wanted to do a true crime podcast. And something that I've always thought was really interesting is that I never listened to any podcast of any kind before you asked me to do one with you. And so that was why I kind of blew you off because I was like, I don't even know what that is for starters. Yeah. <laughs> so how can I do something if I don't even know what it is? Um, but then I could tell that you were serious. So I guess my question for you would be more of why did you want to do it? I mean, what, like, of course, I'm so thrilled that we have the podcast now, but yeah. what made you think like that that was something you really wanted to do? And why did you ask me? <laughs> 
Okay. There's a very easy answer to both of those. I loved podcasts when I started listening. I mean, I probably started listening 10 years ago to podcasts. So I've been like on it for a while. It helped whenever I had small babies. I just loved it. Then I found True Crime Podcast, found Generation Y, and I just loved it. And whenever I realized Generation Y were these two guys who are incredible and do, you know, an amazing podcast, but like at some point they were two guys. And, you know, they didn't have a background in criminology. They didn't have this. And I thought like, all right, well, that would be kind of fun to do. And my husband had a background in audio stuff. So I'm like, well, it wouldn't sound terrible most weeks. Um, so we could make it sound okay. I wanted to do a two-person. And you are my do-anything friend. Like, you're up <laughs> for anything. But like, if anybody I would ask, I knew other people would overthink it and be like, well, I can't commit to that. I can't do that. And you and I were always like, what are you doing today? Nothing? You want to hang out? Okay. Right. So like, <laughs> and I knew you like true, you were interested in true crime. So it was, it was perfect. You were like, I have to give this girl something else to do besides just hang out with Stop me. calling me. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. And it just, it worked out. But like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just funny because we were good friends at that point, mostly. I mean, but we hadn't known each other that long. We've, we really we've... hadn't. Mm-mm. And uh, yeah, so for those who um, are maybe new or haven't heard the story, M- Melissa and I have no background in um, media or podcasting or content creating. No or one is surprised in that one. <laughs> like that. Um, we didn't go to school for this. Like we didn't do anything that um, would help us in any way. <laughs> um, we just kind of showed up and um, started, you know, making episodes. And th- sometimes those early episodes, I, 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 have I never would gone never, back. I would never, I never when, gone back. When people write us back and say like, I'm started at the beginning. I'm like, absolutely Don't do, do not do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people not to do that because uh, the show has evolved and changed so much over the years. We've had different segments, you know, now we do this last thing before we go, but we used to have in the beginning, we had, you know, Googled this city, which I know a lot of people talk about that they miss, but you know, you we kind of got to a point with that where it was like we've talked about a lot of different places and said I keep a lot talking of talking about facts these cities. And, <laughs> yeah, and there's only so much that you can kind of share. But um, those are I love having those like memories of having those different segments and like seeing the different ways that you know the show has changed and evolved and how we used to go from completely. I mean, we've even from the way that we write the notes for the episode, you know, we've mm-hmm. gone through different ways of doing it where it's more of an outline and we just kind of try talking off the cuff a lot more. And we found that the feedback from that wasn't always fantastic. <laughs> so, so we started doing a more heavily scripted show and then people complained about that too. So I feel like we've kind of come now to like a little bit of a happy medium where we try to keep the chitter chatter down, you know, to a minimum in the episode. And then we can have fun here at the end and talk to each other. Yeah. And then if people don't want to listen to us talk to each other, they don't have to. But yeah, so I, what, what's been, what has been a highlight for you, Melissa, over the last five years? I know there have been several. We've had such good luck with this podcast and. um, It's crazy. I would not consider myself to be a person that has any luck. I have bad luck. I don't really have good luck. But somehow with this, like, there have been so many doors open, so many really cool opportunities that, you know, I never thought we would we would have. Like, uh, getting to talk to Ali Sweeney was a huge deal. I remember the tweet coming in, her saying we should be friends and me being like, okay, that's a blue check mark. That's a real person. Like, Mandy, this is legit. And <laughs> You know, and getting to meet so many listeners and becoming like real friends with several people who started out as listening um, to the podcast. That's probably my favorite. Me too. 
And we have some cool stuff coming up that I'm very excited about yes. that we'll get to share. And we've had we've had wild opportunities. Some of them haven't panned out, but they're just you you wouldn't even believe them if we told you. Right. But it's just been like all the time. Mandy being my up for anything friend, it's like, hey, this this is coming up. What do you think about that? And she's like, yeah, I'll do it, which yeah. is great because <laughs> I'm somebody who overthinks things. So it works out to have somebody to be like, yeah, I'm up for it. And I'm like, all right, well, then we can do it. If you think right. we can do it, we can do it. Right. I remember in the beginning and even in even when we were like just a couple of years in, you know, when we would say, how long do we think the podcast can realistically go on for, you know, before mm-hmm. it just kind of starts falling off. And we have been so fortunate and so like truly actually blessed to be able to watch the podcast continue to grow over five years. Yeah. And that we have some very, very loyal listeners that I know have yeah. been listening since the very beginning. And we just appreciate every single person that has listened to the podcast over the last five years and has gotten us to this point that we're at now. And um, I guess where I'm going with that is that we're not ending the podcast oh. <laughs> anytime soon. I didn't I was, realize that that was like, yeah. could have been where we were going. Okay, no. yeah, well, good. Because we used to talk about, you know, like f- is five years, like what, what do we think it's going to yeah. look like when we have five years under our belts? Like, are we still going to be um, relevant? Are people still going to want to listen well. to the show or, <laughs> or you know, what's going to happen? And now I'm like, okay, like, do we need to make another five-year plan going forward? Or like, is that crazy? I don't yeah. know. But I feel like I the craziest things have happened to us already. So it's wild. And every year we're just like, can you – that's like the coolest thing I think doing this with your friend is being able to – like something crazy happening and being able to like call you or write you – not call you, text you and just be like, oh my gosh, can you believe it? And it's like we always have like a brief little conversation between <laughs> each other like, remember when this happened? Remember when this happened? Because it is like we are two moms. Like – that's nobody's. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I like, I think people get that, but sometimes I don't think they do because they'll write. And if we write them back, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you wrote back. I'm like, listen, all I'm, I'm doing just, is like, sitting doing, here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm watching Bravo. Like, I'm, <laughs> I need to do the dishes. I'm ignoring those so I can right. write you back. Not that exciting. So it's been so cool. And we've gotten to share so many stories of like truly incredible people and families. And like, I'm just so thankful. I'm I'm very thankful that we've been able to do this. And I, I think the heat is getting to me in this closet because I feel almost <laughs> This is emotional. like the most emotional conversation I think we've ever had on the podcast. The most oh, I think that we've ever talked about like our true feelings about how, you know, what we feel about the podcast. And yeah. I, I hope that it comes across, you know, in the content that we put out there that like we are very uh, – we do take our podcast very seriously and we yeah. love doing it. And it is something that we enjoy doing together. And um, and yes, we just want to make great content. But also, like Melissa said, we really enjoy sharing the stories and the connections that we make with listeners of the stories and people who have even been you know involved in some way in a yeah. terrible crime. And how cool it is that we get to have a part in sharing these stories that are so important, you know, to these families. And I just think yeah. it's so special and great and amazing. And we truly do appreciate um, having the platform and being able to continue to do the podcast. Totally. Couldn't have said it better. Great job, Mandy. All right. So, Melissa, I think that was it. Before we start crying, we should get out of here. <laughs> I know, right? So before we go, though, we are going to play a promo for one of our favorite shows. The show is Pretend, hosted by Javier Leva. And He's doing this series, Mandy. I'm not sure if you've listened to it yet, but it's on Frank Abagnale, the Catch Me If You Can guy. So you know the movie Catch Me If You Can. So basically, 
nothing the guys ever said is true. Like literally 95% of it never happened. And you watch that movie and you think it's all happened. Well, he's been able to research. There's been other research in the past, but Javier was able to meet the guy. It's crazy. And everything you think you know about the story you don't know. So make sure you check that out. We'll be playing that promo. Absolutely. And if you've never listened to anything Javier has done, like y- you need to stop what you're doing right now and go listen to and finish our episode. Anything. Yeah. But he, um, his podcasts are amazing. Everything he talks about, his research is fantastic. And I just love listening to anything that he puts out. So yeah, I haven't listened to this one yet, but I am definitely excited to check that one out. So good. I think two parts are out now, and I think it's going to end up being like five episodes. But we're talking like the FBI thing might not have ever happened. It's just, it's blown my mind. So yeah, you'll definitely want to check it out. All right, guys. Well, that is it for this week. We will see you next week. Same time, same place, new story. Happy five years, Mandy. Happy five years. Bye. Bye. Do you remember the movie Catch Me If You Can? Well, apparently, a lot of people think that this movie is based on a true story. But I found out it's 98% BS. Frank Abagnale says that he posed as an airline pilot, he was a doctor, and he wrote $2.5 million in bad checks. But after doing a little digging, it turns out that Frank Abagnale's story is a lie. And I have the documents to prove it. You see, I've been trying to get Frank Abagnale on my podcast for five years now. So if he won't come to me, well, I'll just have to go to him. Hey, Mr. Abagnale, for six years you evaded the the FBI, uh, pretending to be a pilot, a doctor, a professor. But how were you able to do that if you were sitting in prison the whole time? Uh, Just recently, I flew out to Vegas and confronted Frank Abagnale after one of his keynote speeches. This is the real Catch Me If You Can. And I'm going to expose his lies one by one. And I have the police records, court records, all the documents I need to prove he's a fraud. Look for the episode titled The Real Catch Me If You Can, only on Pretend. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.